Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And this week, I'm excited to welcome Dr. June Yun to the show. And I'm doing a little extra intro here because Dr. June and I launched into some great discussion when I originally hit record. So a quick bio about Dr. June before we dive into the episode. Uh, Dr. June's work is actually work that we have referenced several times in the podcast and in many other materials uh, throughout Elite HRV's history because he's the president and managing partner of the Palo Alto Investors LP, which is a healthcare hedge fund founded in the 1980s, 1989. Um, but that and his career trajectory then led him fast forward a couple of decades to launch the $1 million Palo Alto Longevity Prize in 2013 with his wife, Kimberly, which is a prize uh, awarded to teams competing to reverse the aging process. Um, and one of the primary criteria that they have for determining the success of that prize is which team can increase the heart rate variability of the participants or, or of the test subjects rather uh, the most. And so in summary, um, we talk a lot in this episode about homeostatic capacity and increasing heart rate variability and resilience uh, and autonomic function and things like that. Um, but I'm just really excited to uh, talk to Dr. June today and share that with you um, because you can look up his bio that we've linked to uh, for more information, but he really uh, is well-connected in the research and science arena, specifically around heart rate variability and inflammation and autonomic nervous system health and related subjects. So really excited to dig in. Just wanted to give a little quick background about Dr. June's extensive experience. He is a um, board certified in radiology and served on the clinical faculty at Stanford for six years. He served on numerous boards of other uh, research institutions and companies and is a trustee at the Salk Institute. Again, kind of the list goes on about the extensive credentials of Dr. June. So hope you enjoy the show and let's get into it. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today I'm excited to welcome Dr. June Yun to the show. Dr. June, welcome. Jason, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And I'm particularly excited about having you on the show because uh, we at Elite HRV have referenced the Palo Alto Prize and, and a lot of your other work um, in many webinars and discussions that we've had with our audience and then with each other internally as well. So um, honored to have you here and excited to pick your brain on all things uh, homeostatic capacity and uh, longevity and resilience and HRV related. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be on the show and, um, and I'm grateful to be made aware of your work and, uh, and your audience and their interests. Perfect. Thank you for that. And, you know, one of the things that really stands out when you look at your work is a pretty clear focus on longevity 
and the concept of aging. And I think one thing that uh, really interests me, it catches my eye rather about it is that you take a slightly different view of it than others that I've seen in the industry. And, um, and that's kind of ends up being where we cross paths on this concept of homeostatic capacity. And I've even heard quotes from you that say things like, maybe we should eat junk food once in a while. And I like to kind of just throw out those little teasers here at the beginning, because I think we're going to get into a really interesting discussion about all this. Mm. And, and to start out, though, what kind of drew your interest to the field of longevity and aging? Yeah, um, you know, as a practicing physician uh, many years back, um, I no longer practice now, but, you know, it was, um, it was really striking the inordinate amount of suffering created by the aging process, whatever that thing is, um, you know, it, uh, the toll, the, the physical toll, the social toll, emotional toll, spiritual, economic toll of aging is just tremendous. And, um, you know, being in the front lines, you, you see it and you see it every day. Uh, when you take a step back and think about the big picture, um, you know, it is probably the most significant thing going on biologically um, that, um, you know, we're trying to address the healthcare system. And I think we're doing a pretty good job from a managing diseases standpoint. But when it gets to the fundamental biology and, and the processes of aging, um, it was clear that it was something that we need to learn a lot more about. And so, um, you know, that's what drew my medical interest. In terms of it goes a little further back in terms of um, just kind of personal intellectual interest in aging. It dates back to college um, when I, you know, I used to go knock on doors of professors that I used to read about, uh, not only where I was, but even when I was traveling. Uh, I was always curious um, what else uh, they were thinking about that, um, you know, they felt either because they were, it was, you know, they were conservative or, you know, it's because science is competitive that they hadn't shared yet. Um, so even today in the internet age, I'm always curious what hasn't been put down into the internet, uh, has been digitized. So I always enjoyed just you know knocking on doors. It was like I think about it as a one-on-one podcast. We'd go in there and, and talk. And uh, it was actually E.O. Wilson, Professor E.O. Wilson. Um, I knocked on his door. The 15 minutes turned into an hour, and then it turned into a six-month project uh, where we started to think about um, – the role of aging and evolution. You know, does selection play a role in the emergence of aging or not? Um, and there was a, you know, there's been a debate going on for a hundred years about this. Um, and you know, that's, the debate itself is very compelling. Um, but, you know, my personal take on it was, well, I don't know if aging is an adaptation or not. Teleology is hard to prove. Um, it's always fun to debate. Um, but I just took the position, what if actually aging is a, a, a phenomenon um, that is a trait that is being selected? Like, what would the implications be? Um, because if you, if you think about aging as an um, emergent, uh, uncontrollable process, you would think about ameliorating in one way. Whereas if you thought about it as a more core process, uh, you might look for solutions in a completely different solution space. Um, but, you know, I had no further... Um, thoughts about it at the time uh, until I start to see the work of Cynthia Kenyon, Manny Caranti, back in the 90s, 
where they were starting to demonstrate the plasticity of aging uh, in um, uh, you know in nature, and that kind of re-piqued my interest, um, showing that you can dramatically alter uh, the span of life um, and the appearances of aging. Like this just re-triggered my interest. Like there's something here. I don't know what. Um, and again, I started to knock on their doors. I visited Cynthia Kenyon in the 90s, um, talked to Lenny and David Sinclair, probably right around 2000, plus or minus a couple of years. Um, so I re-engaged. And by that point, of course, the science um, was moving along. And, um, and by this point, I'm in medical practice, and I see it with my own eyes. And you know, I'm kind of a lumper more than a divider when it comes to knowledge and information. Um, thinking about the, the fractal nature of biology and um, kind of the cellular automata, you know, simple rules can lead to what appear to be complex processes. So just constantly thought about what's the first order phenomenon? Uh, what is underneath all this? What are the drivers? And, and that's what finally led me to think about the social implications, economic implications, um, and thinking about, you know, what can I contribute to the discussion? There's no one way to think about this. There's lots of great ideas out there, a lot of great theories, great research going on. Um, but what can I contribute? There's so much in that short little blurb that you just shared with us to unpack that I'm even more excited now to dig into this conversation. Um, the, you know, some things that you kind of mentioned almost offhandedly, like the fractal nature of biology and the plasticity of aging. Those are pretty profound uh, term uh, phrases, if anyone hasn't heard them or thought about them before. Um, and, and they're piquing my thought process quite a bit. And one of the directions I know that you went with this, which is why I kind of originally came across your work, was um, interest in homeostatic capacity, inflammation, and subjects like that. And before we hit record, you know, we were talking a little bit about uh, before the show, and you, you have this kind of notion of uh, going beyond just health into supernormal health. And this also relates to, the, to your interest in work and longevity. So let's start unpacking some of these subjects. Um, where do you think is a good place to start? Is it with homeostatic capacity or um, kind of defining what supernormal health is? Why should we care about it? What, what do you think? Uh, well, you started with homeostatic capacity. Happy to start there. And also, you know, I'm, I haven't done a lot of podcasts, so I will try to be more short-winded so you can redirect me along the way. So why don't we start with homeostatic capacity? Sure, no worries. And this is fine. It's, uh, this is just a, a conversation that lots of people get to listen to. <laughs> okay. Um, so homeostatic capacity, let me first define it for your audience. Um, uh, and the technical terms are things like auto-regulatory capacity, resilience, um, buffering. Um, but the easier way to visualize this uh, from an audience perspective, is to think about it as a weeble wobble. You know, that toy, that egg-shaped toy that self-centers when you push it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's like an inverted pendulum. Um, the nature's greatest endowment is our capacity to get back to homeostasis uh, when we're pushed, when we're stressed. And it can be any sort of stress, biotic stress, infection, 
um, you know, running, uh, any change in conditions, um, we've been granted um, this trait called homeostatic capacity. And it's so robust when we're young that we don't even realize we have homeostatic capacity. Like nature's gifts, many gifts, right? We, uh, we often don't know what we have until we lose it. And it's around 40 that we start losing it. I went through this um, transformation around 40 where all of a sudden I couldn't do the things I used to be able to do. Uh, such as ride roller coasters without feeling like um, I'm going to get sick. You know, when you're young, you know, when you undergo, uh, you know, the physiological upheaval of being on a roller coaster, up and down, sideways, you're getting pulled all ways, all different ways, and your blood pressure, heart rate, all those things self-regulate back to homeostasis. So you experience that as quote fun. At 40, um, your weeble wobble doesn't self-center, and I experience it as uh, uh, like feeling ill. So mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. was happening was my autonomic physiology wasn't self-centering um, and my body was reporting it as an error. And so I stopped riding roller coasters at 40. Um, in fact, by the time you're 80, um, they actually advise you not to get on it because you might actually have, you know, suffer some sort of cardiac event. Um, this um, singular experience of being a roller coaster, uh, I thought about it. You know, it's actually, there's similar experiences almost everywhere in life that happen at 40. All of a sudden, when I go to uh, the mountains, I feel altitude sickness. My kids are sprinting, you know, they're like, you know, they're, they were little kids and now they're teenagers. They have no idea what I'm talking about when I tell them that I don't feel well, I feel sick, I feel short of breath, I feel dizzy. Same thing with diving, I used to dive and you know, I can no longer tolerate the same depths. I can't tolerate temperature change. You know, my kids are in t-shirts at, you know, when it's 50 degrees, I'm in two layers now. Um, you know, when it's a hundred, you know, they, they experience this, how they're sweating, but they don't, they're not uncomfortable, whereas I'm uncomfortable. Um, you know, when I go to the East coast now, um, uh, you know, I'm in two layers and I remember growing up in the East coast, um, two layers in Thanksgiving. Um, I remember being okay with a single layer. People say our blood thins. Um, but I think what's happening is we're losing our dynamic range. We're losing our homeostatic capacity. We're losing our ability to tolerate. Uh, variances um, and you know then I go on and on like all of a sudden when I go in the restaurant my you know it's too dark when I go outside I need sunglasses I I don't remember these things from when I was in my 30s um, and there's various theories on why you can't see as well at night about rods and cones but you know it's also been demonstrated that your pupillary accommodations your pupils under accommodate um, in the changing light conditions. So when you think about all these different things, is it possible that many different things are going wrong or is it actually some more uh, core phenomenon, uh, a lower order phenomenon that is manifesting differently in different bodies, different parts of the body? And then you start thinking about diseases um, of aging such as hypertension and diabetes, inflammation. Uh, you know, when we're young, all these things go high and they go back to normal. Um, blood pressure goes high and it self-regulates that to normal. Sugars go high. Uh, same with our inflammatory cascades. Everything self-normalizes. So what if these so-called diseases of aging are actually just lag errors where um, we've lost the capacity to get back to homeostasis? So then kind of organizing all those thoughts, the litany of things that we experience both subjectively and objectively into a more common concept called homeostatic capacity is the origination of that thought. Mm, and that's uh, there's 
again, so much to unpack there because in a sense, you know, I've, I've used the term adaptation um, a lot and we also uh, talk uh, about allostasis and, and adaptation with re regard to that as well. Um, and, but I, I you know, Linking your kind of intro interest in, in longevity to this homeostatic capacity, you mentioned the fractal nature of biology and then kind of core, uh, simple core concepts potentially that have complex ripple effects. And then you now are kind of saying, well, is it possible that there's maybe some core uh, issue that's happening that's just manifesting itself differently for different bodies and in my conversations with folks in the functional medicine scene, um, uh, they have seen that on the front lines, just kind of anecdotally, uh, where you know maybe two, you know, a very common thing nowadays is to talk about something like gluten intolerance, right? And um, you know, you find two different people who have gluten intolerance, or at least that's what has been identified as. Uh, their condition and one person has IBS and the other person has arthritis and uh, it's they uh, both of them experience uh, alleviation of symptoms when they don't eat gluten for example and the temptation is um, to just focus on those symptoms and ignore you know a potential root cause and it's debatable now that I'm kind of listening to you as well that gluten is necessarily even the root cause. It could be that that is again a leading or a trailing um, uh, situation that has come from an even deeper root cause looking at homeostatic capacity disruption. Is that, is that a term that I just make that up? Homeostatic capacity disruption. <laughs> um, that's great. So that would be, HCD, <laughs> <laughs> and I like your thinking about gluten. Uh, again, you know, all these things, um, I, I don't know. I don't know, but then I'll kind of try to unpack it and think about it. Uh, I think it, you know, it behooves us to always think about what's the lower order phenomenon, what's the first order phenomenon, and then what's the second order phenomenon, what's the third order phenomenon. And like, let's say we treat the fifth order phenomenon, ameliorating the fifth order phenomenon doesn't solve the first order phenomenon and it's likely to create the sixth order phenomenon because the way uh, systems work, when you think from a systems level, um, treating downstream effects um, only leads to new things. Um, so let's say we talk about gluten. Uh, if that is a, let's say a ninth order phenomenon, um, we'll address that, but we'll probably manifest a tenth order phenomenon, such as you're probably losing tolerance to gluten and, or certain types of foods, and um, you're actually probably narrowing your buffering capacity to nutrition. I mean, like, um, so in other words, uh, I like the framing of thinking about that, what's more upstream. And I know, I don't know what the first order thing is, but we're trying to get as low as possible in terms of the order. Um, so that, um, you know, we get, you know, just approximate the thing that we used to have when we were born, which is just extreme resilience. And kids are like so resilient, right? Like if you were, um, if you think about just the ICU setting, the pediatric versus adult ICU, for an adult to end up in the ICU, the probability of not making it out alive is pretty high. Whereas if you're a child and you make it in the ICU, you're most likely going to live. Mm. So that suggests how much innate resilience when we set a capacity we have. So, um, so I think it's, you know, I always think about what's the lower order and I don't know what it is and we can even get 
you know, just speculate on what are the things that lead to losses of homeostatic capacity. Um, you know, even then, that's not ultimately reaching the first order, but it'll give us maybe some potential clues to how to make those things better. And and sometimes, you know, when you're navigating this upstream, downstream kind of conversation, there's, I like to kind of think, you know, uh, for one, in biology or or chemistry or physics, you know, ultimately what we're learning is that for practical purposes, you can go almost infinite in either direction, upstream, downstream, or more simple or more complex. And, uh, but from a practical standpoint, you know, what, what do we know today or what do we uh, maybe have uh, capacity to reach today, so to speak? And uh, so, you know, you, I, I kind of mentioned you have a quote, maybe we should eat junk food once in a while. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting quote because on one hand, um, it resonates a lot, I'm sure, with people when they hear it. And on the other hand, um, people who are kind of dealing with maybe inflammation or some sort of health condition or dissatisfaction with their body in some way, they might be like, well, wait a second, you know, I thought I was supposed to be more strict. And uh, so w- what do you mean when you say maybe we should eat junk food once in a while? Um, yes. And the, uh, you know, I happen to pick Doritos cause I just love the flavor. It's like the most optimized junk food out there, <laughs> um, but just eating it once a month. Um, because if, um, if what's happening and I, again, I don't know for sure is we're losing resilience. We're losing, you know, we're becoming more brittle. We're becoming more fragile instead of anti-fragile and just, you know, pulling in all the different, um, uh, wars from different vernacular areas, um, for becoming more fragile and frail then um, is the idea to avoid it or should we actually contest it? Um, Because the thing that, and this gets back to like one of the core philosophical arguments, the Ouroboros, which is, you know, feed the snake its own tail. Can we use exactly what we're suffering from as the energy to get better? So if the loss of dynamic range, the loss of homeostatic capacity uh, is what's happening, could we actually use the stressors to rebuild the buffers? so if we are losing our tolerance to certain types of food, should we actually expose ourselves to that at small incremental doses to actually expand our dynamic range um, to, to actually regain the, the loss resilience? Mm. Um, so, and it sounds a little bit crazy, right? I mean, could we actually raise our blood pressure as a way to lower it? Because, you know, the way we think about it today in 20th century medicine is, well, if your blood pressure is high, we lower it. Well, that's like propping up the weeble wobble. When you prop up the weeble wobble, it actually causes atrophy. You actually get weaker underneath it. Um, so in the case of hypertension medicines, you know, when you lower the blood pressure with an antihypertensive, your baseline actually can rise. Your set point moves in the wrong direction, and you can end up with rebound hypertension. You know, the more generalized term is tachyphylaxis, that you're actually getting addicted to the drug. So is it possible that the vast majority of our therapies today um, where we're solving the state problem, not that dynamic problem, I'll get back to that in a second, um, are actually uh, making, making us um, feel better in the short run, but in the long run, it's actually getting us addicted to the system. Um, and so by the time you're eight years old, you, know, you might be on 20 meds, maxed out on everything. And how do you distinguish the fact that maybe the native disease got worse versus the ongoing uh, atrophy of your native capacity because we're continuing to prop up the system. 
So the solution might be completely paradoxical and opposite. What if we actually used youth stress, EU stress? Uh, distress is bad. So, you know, you don't want to necessarily, if you have a sensitivity to certain something, uh, let's say you've lost your, your tolerance for altitude. Like, you know, you go to 8,000 feet and now you feel sick. The idea isn't the helicopter to 8,000 feet. The idea is to acclimate the same way that you wouldn't go to 20,000 feet. You wouldn't you know, head towards um, Kilimanjaro on a helicopter. Mm-hmm. You, would just, um, you know, you'd spend a couple of weeks along the way to acclimate. So think about that same mountain climbing idea with everything. So the idea isn't to go to a jump into a hot bath, cold bath, which would definitely expose you to variance. But the, uh, the optimal way to variance train isn't to go to extremes, is to build capacity along the way slowly. Use increments of eustress versus distress. Distress, your body mounts a catastrophic response, and it can be deadly. Like the, this classic picture out of Netter, um, the anatomy textbook, where you know, somebody who's a little bit older steps out from a warm 70 degrees restaurant, steps outside to a 20 degree weather, and drops out of a heart attack. If you've lost homeostatic capacity, then that delta between your capacity and the stress experience um, can trigger a catastrophic response. I, I think that's something to be avoided. So I'm, I'm very cautious of the idea of um, variance training unless it comes with the kind of a judicious approach of using eustress, small amounts to build tolerance along the way. So same thing with what you're seeing with food allergies now. Um, you know, they don't jump right to the maximum dose. You actually build capacity along the way. Same with like weight training. When you're working out, you don't try to bench press 150. You go from, you know, 75, 80, 85. Um, so I think that, um, that self-tuning um, to use the self-regulation uh, and the buffering capacity of the body more gradually, uh, I think can actually help restore some of our lost uh, homeostatic capacity. And, and if I may throw out another word there, the, the concept of hormesis, um, which in, you know, it sounds very similar to homeostasis, but uh, for those familiar or not familiar, rather, um, homeostasis and homeostatic capacity, referring more to the weeble wobble, as you're, I really like that uh, analogy, by the way. Um, everyone can picture if they've ever interacted with the weeble wobble. If you beat it up enough, it sort of becomes lopsided and uh, just doesn't quite get back to center the same way it used to. And so it paints such a vivid picture. But um, homeostasis being kind of that uh, concept of uh, flexibility and restoring balance, where hormesis being uh, referring more to that concept of stressing a system with, with you stress just enough to cause adaptation that's positive, right? And um, what I've found in my experience is that since we're such adaptive creatures, is that we adapt, we're always adapting. It's kind of like that saying goes, the only constant is change. Um, We're always changing, we're always evolving and adapting. And so you're either adapting favorably or unfavorably. And that's kind of based off of the combination of the uh, intensity and volume of stress that you experience or apply to your body in any specific domain and across domains too. So your homeostatic capacity for altitude 
maybe less if you have depleted your system through poor nutritional choices or poor exercise choices or things like that, in my experience. Exactly. Uh, and that reveals the multidimensional nature of all these discussions. Capacity building, um, which is the kind of the simple way to think about it, uh, is the preparedness for things that you haven't seen or possibly have seen. And, you know, so in other words, you can build resilience for a 24-hour buffer, but that may undermine you for a one-week buffer. And so how you train, like the way I exercise, um, I change the time of day, the routine, um, the, the weight interval. I, I vary the variance. So think about the irregularly irregular mm-hmm. as a way to build robustness. But no matter how you try it, there's still an infinite number of dimensions you haven't considered. So these things aren't, you, you, there's no such thing as a perfect solution because you don't know what you're going to encounter next. Maybe in the world in 50 years, we're on Mars, and we haven't built a buffer for that. Um, so nature is very backward-looking that way. We're always driving, looking at the rearview mirror, um, and hopefully the road forward will look something like what we see in the rearview mirror, but it can deviate, and we'll have, we, we may find out that we train for all the wrong things, and that's totally normal. There's no way to forecast uh, the future. Um, the... What is happening for sure, though, is that our dynamic range is narrowing in so many ways. So, so much of what we do use technology for um, is to offload the work of homeostatic capacity that would happen naturally, and we offload the workload uh, onto system, external systems. So, instead of allowing our body to tolerate the variance of temperature, even within a single day, like right now in Tahoe, the variance is 70 degrees Fahrenheit to 30 degrees Fahrenheit in a single day. In nature, you wouldn't have uh, the sheltering that allow you to stay 70 degrees all the time. You don't have HVAC systems. Uh, you don't have clothes. Um, and so uh, in the natural world, you would continually maintain thermal dynamic capacity, homeostatic capacity. But in the modern world, all the good things we did to eliminate it as a variable has actually deconditioned us. And so we're getting more brittle, not only because of aging, but also because of our lifestyle. So now, you know, 30 degrees to me, it just, it just feels like, you know, absolutely uh, intolerable. Um, but again, the solutions to kind of get that back by slowly exposing yourself. So that's the, that's the kind of paradox within everything we're discussing is that, you know, exactly what we think is the enemy can, can be our friend. And, you know, it's interesting the conundrum we find ourselves in because in a way, um, avoiding pain and avoiding discomfort, uh, would likely have been evolutionarily advantageous in um, a more physically dangerous and uh, unknown environment in the wild, so to speak. And so we kind of have, and and this is, again, me just kind of uh, uh, riffing, so to speak, on um, my views and on information that I've gathered, uh, not pointing at any specific study or anything, but uh, we then through technology and innovation figured out how to solve all of those problems like temperature discomfort and food discomfort and um, like visual stimulation or dopamine release, uh, things like that, that kind of our bodies are driving us to seek out. But our bodies weren't designed to have all of those comforts and in unlimited quantities. And if I may just do one more kind of analogous story to what you're describing is that if you uh, suffer an acute injury, like for example, I broke my ankle in high school and I uh, had to have surgery and then I was put into a cast and 
Um, it was very sad because I liked playing soccer. Um, but at no point in the recovery process did anyone say, oh, it hurts when you take this cast off. You should just leave the cast on for the rest of your life, right? And uh, nobody ever suggested that to me. And, and why? Because it's pretty common knowledge that if you leave a cast on, it atrophies the muscle, the muscles, the tissues, the bones, because you're not using any of them. You're not stressing them at all. And in some sense, we put a cast around ourselves in the modern world uh, from all of these things that cause discomfort. Um, and in the process for recovering from that surgery was uh, leave the cast on for a while, then take it off and just do basic small things. And then to cut the story a little shorter is slowly incrementally increase the stress that you put on that ankle until you're eventually standing and eventually walking, you're eventually running. And lo and behold, when you're young and your homeostatic capacity is high and uh, two months after breaking your ankle with a compound fracture, you're playing soccer again. <laughs> and exactly. uh, right. that's one of those stories that kind of, I don't know if I've actually shared uh, too much detail on the podcast before, but um, the emergency services came and just the nature of the injury said I was about 90 seconds away from being a permanent amputee. And I can't even imagine the ripple effect that would have had on my life. So um, that's just a side note, but it's the world we live in and I'm fortunate to be here standing today. Um, but the, uh, but I think that, you know, what you're saying or what I'm hearing from you is that that same concept of, um, you know, sometimes fixing something that's broken, um, but also looking at how we improve or prevent ourselves from degenerating, um, can be similar across domains and that perhaps there's a kind of deeper core lesson there. Uh, yeah, for us. I think that go ahead I'm sorry I interrupted no no that was it that was the that was that was the deeper lesson yeah I think metaphorically you can map that to um, multiple dimensions um, see the casting example and I'm, I'm glad that um, um, that you know you were within the window where everything you know, get, kind of gets back to robustness um, it's a terrifying story um, so we, when, we, when you think about even our muscular dynamic range, we have incredible flexion and extension capacity. And as you pointed out, when you narrow the dynamic range by putting a cast on, the body reallocates the energy and the resources elsewhere because you know, nature is constantly optimizing. It's, um, you know, it can misread those signals. You might think that the cast actually means something else, that you actually lost function. Um, and now think about the fact that you and I are probably currently sitting in an ergonomic and neutral position. So while we're not in a cast, we're casting ourselves in a role uh, of somebody who is deconditioning. Um, so now, instead of letting our muscles experience their native dynamic range of flexion and extension, um, uh, by virtue of trying to be more comfortable, we are narrowing our uh, muscular range. And we know that um, just stretching has manifold benefits functionally, and you know, some would argue even health-wise. Um, and people talk about yoga and diabetes. Um, I don't know how strong the scientific evidence there is in the literature, um, but just getting back out there and restretching, um, you can again extrapolate that to other domains. So, like our eyes, right? Instead of you know, we have this dynamic capacity to see things that are 
30 miles away and things that are six inches away. And let, instead of letting our focal length exercise itself um, through the dynamic range, uh, we now stare 18 inches uh, all day long. So it's like putting our focal capacity in a cast and we lose it. Um, so you can take this in all dimensions and realize we're doing this to ourselves. Even just a simple act of opening a door, uh, which you used to do with a rolling motion um, through just your own power, now are done by a little finger. So think about how much, you know, op- how many opportunities to just let our bodies mm-hmm. do its thing. We're giving up because we've offloaded uh, that work, that responsibility on the external technologies. Um, I want to. Um, highlight something you said earlier too, um, and Ed Calabrese's work on hormesis uh, and the, the field of allostasis and allostatic load. Um, and I think, those, uh, I think those are both amazing concepts because it shows the, the multidimensionality. I mean, I think we're, we're, we're speaking simply here um, in a way that is digestible, but there are nuances built in the biology that are absolutely incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I... Um, Ed, Ed Calabrese wrote me an email, it was 2005, uh, and it really t- um, tuned me into thinking about um, the kind of the slope of responsiveness at different parts of the curve, the low end of stress, high end of stress, um, and the fact that not only the response is different, but they can even be um, diametrically opposite. So really understanding um, this in a multi-dimensional space. Um, and same with the allostatic response, allostatic load, these concepts. Um, because the, depending on the duration of the stress, um, you can get the depletion. So it's not just the fact that we are enduring stress, but kind of the shape of the stress curve, the area under the curve. There's so many other things to think about where our responses um, in all these dimensions may not be what we think. Um, and uh, and therefore, um, you know, in a way, we have to listen to our bodies in terms of how we design our restoration. Um, uh, we know that the only place we've ever seen the fountain of youth, and we've seen it, is actually in young people. You know, it's not in some mountain uh, and drinking some potion. You know, we've seen homeostatic capacity. You know, you see these 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds. So we know the fountain of youth is actually within the body. And so wouldn't it be ironic if the recovery of homeostatic capacity is about the idea of recovery, that we can use the recovery process to recover the thing that we lost that we didn't even know we had when we were 14. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, popping up to a higher level about this idea of dimensionality, I think when I think about how do we, um, you know, why did we do 20th century medicine and biology the way we did? Uh, and I think it gets back to this core idea um, of, four-dimensional biology. We're a four-dimensional system. We're using the word dynamics in this conversation. We're a dynamic system. And when you take a four-dimensional system like us and measure it three-dimensionally, improve it dimensionally, that's a model error. Like, you cannot study four-dimensional systems three-dimensionally. Just like, you know, using calculus to, um, you know, understand the, uh, the behavior of a curve. You know, it's just challenging because you're just getting point-in-time data. Uh, what Herman Mankowski did for Einstein in 1908 um, was to really just re-instantiate four-dimensional thinking into physics. I mean, it had been going on since Newton, 
Um, but it helped the integration of physics into something that was more coherent. I think the opportunity exists in biology too. Homeostasis is a, you know, it's off of Bauer's principle. It really is a um, three-dimensional idea. Um, and if you add the fourth dimension, if you just add one more dimension to three-dimensional biology, I think it changes everything. Ironically, it's not an incremental change. It's actually a directional change. So if you think um, three-dimensionally, you think point-in-time data. So you would measure point-in-time biomarkers, like your annual checkup is things like heart rate, blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol. These are all point-in-time data. And they, they report something. It's a very indirect way to understand the state of the system. Imagine instead turning everything, every diagnostic test into a four-dimensional diagnostic test. So instead of measuring heart rate, blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol, you measure HRV, bare receptor function, uh, glucose tolerance, lipid tolerance, right? Because those things actually decline long before your point-in-time data start showing this function. Uh, in other words, your ability to recover your heart rate after exercise declines much sooner than um, you manifesting any tachycardia, bradycardia. Same thing with your blood pressure abnormalities. You actually report baroreceptor function much earlier, dysfunction much earlier. So what if we take this three-dimensional diagnostic system we have? And you know, fortunately, we have a few tests in the medical system today that report four-dimensional data, but almost all the rest of it is three-dimensional. So adding more biomarkers, getting the 10,000 biomarkers, we'll definitely learn something, but it's a very indirect way to understand the nature of systems. So now imagine everything becoming continuous data, continuous glucose monitoring, continuous HRV. These are the you know, leading edge, but imagine everything being that way. So if we actually generate four-dimensional science and four-dimensional data, then it will probably not only give us a better understanding of how the systems function and then how they fail to function, but it would probably lead to completely different ways to um, help the body regain health. So rather than giving you a, um, uh, a Band-Aid, you would actually focus on improving your body four-dimensionally. And, uh, and then the healthcare becomes your own. You know, healthcare system was inside your body for you know, 40 years and then it leaves you at 40. Um, and then we start whack-a-moling your dysfunctions and then we die. I mean, that's the short history of life. Imagine instead, and by the way, we're doing a good job of it. Healthcare system is you know, incredibly powerful and there's so many great innovations, but it's also costing us $3 trillion a year and everybody dies. So as good as the current system is, you know, we can do better than this. So uh, if you actually imagine taking all of those therapeutic ideas, but just then putting it back in the body, put homeostatic capacity back in the body so you can actually wean off the healthcare system. Imagine taking healthcare costs up, you know, very low, and you're still going to have orthopedics and obstetrics, and you know, you know, there are things that are still going to happen. The things in areas of life will always, you know, impede our, uh, impede our lives. Um, but you can still make it a lot smaller because the system now is resonant within you again. I think that's the kind of the, that's kind of the hope. And and by the way, you know, once you start thinking four dimensionally, you realize you don't just have to have to get back to baseline. You can get above baseline. You can get super normal states of health, just like athletes today can perform things that um, a normal person can't. So now imagine having the hall of fame of all of your homeostatic capacities. Like you're, you know, imagine, you know, celebrating uh, like an Olympiad. Um, you know, this is this person's thermal capacity. This is this person's altitude capacity. Right? Mm, wow. Mm -hmm. um, and so now we're not only talking about disease and health, but we're talking about a vertical axis to all of these things that um, don't really exist today, that we can measure and uh, 
uh, and improve against. And who knows what's going to happen to aging and longevity once you start having um, you know people develop uh, you know super normal levels of uh, homeostatic capacity. And it's uh, I love the the four dimensional way of framing that because it really kind of um, it adds clarity in in a very succinct way to kind of the the next leap, so to speak, that we can make with biology and and playing off of the concept you know that you said uh, has carried over from physics and math and uh, and sort of uh, uh, more foundational sciences, so to speak, as the, as you kind of layer up from simplicity and complexity there. And it's, I really actually, I'm biased, of course, but I would love to see, uh, uh competitions for people were competing for homeostatic capacity <laughs> as a, you know, in a sense, um, if you relate it sort of to like the world of CrossFit, which is a fitness oriented world, uh, they have the CrossFit games where people are competing in fitness, right? Basically, who can be the fittest? And um, But the people who go to a CrossFit gym, uh, most often, or most of them, uh, I think it's safe to say most of them don't expect to compete and win at the CrossFit games. Um, but they kind of like to know that the similar routines and uh, movements that they're doing can lead to these really amazing feats of fitness. Um, and in a sense, you know, what you've mentioned kind of that there's a, a dimensionality to this conversation as well on from like a lifestyle perspective, we've got pillars that people would be very familiar with, such as nutrition, uh, where you could uh, kind of put some bounds around homeostatic capacity with regard to handling um energy and nutrient absorption from things that we put inside our body. Um, and then we've got exercise as a pretty big category and sleep is a pretty big category or just general kind of recovery downtime could be lumped into that potentially. And we have uh, the psychological and social uh, realm where uh, humans are also just interesting creatures in the sense that we can kind of convince ourselves that things are one way or another, and that can actually manifest itself physiologically uh, into, um, you know, expressing itself in the body. And are there any other realms? I, I kind of highlight those four because we've talked about them in various uh, capacities on this podcast. Are there any other realms that you kind of look at when you think about these? I think about homeostatic capacity and and different practical ways that we can view it. Uh, I, I I I love listening to you because you're you're are, you're an ambassador of um, uh, of the very notion because uh, the way you both the way you live your life and the way you extrapolate and the way you're able to manifest in different dimensions is just so natural. And I think that speaks to the, the power of the story that everybody can write their own story here. There's no there's no cookbook with this, but once you think about variance training, interval training for everything, irregularly irregular everything. Um, then people can um, take, you know, go on their own personal journey on this. So it could be like, you know, even something as travel, just you know, continually change um, your, you know, experience, read different books, listen to different conversations, sit in a different seat, uh, drive home in a different way uh, every day. 
um, you know, look at the word upside down, um, you know, literally hang vertically upside down, just change your position, um, change your, uh, change your diet. Like you say, um, you know, eat different things, you know, the, the one diet that is never, you know, <laughs> I mean, people say eat a balanced diet, but now imagine just changing that continuously. Even you think about interval fasting, it's not interval fasting per se, but it's the fact that, you know, you, your body is like in a, um, digestion state and a non-digestion state. Same thing with sleep. It's the fact that you're awake and non-awake. In other words, dynamic range is built in. Like same same thing with sunlight. You know, in nature, you're in sunlight during the day and you're in darkness at night. And now we've narrowed that dynamic range to having you know sunglasses on, you know, having indoor jobs, and then at night we turn on the light. So even our natural dynamic range exposure to light is you know a debuffering. So the solution is to get back out there. You know, just live live more naturally in nature, um, you know, just feel the wind on your face. Um, uh, you know, we, we talk about other things that give you kind of acute pulses um, of HRV variants. Um, you know, we talk about sex, we talk about laughter. I mean, all those things we intuitively know to be true uh, are, are natural ways to expand our dynamic range. And the, the other secret sauce here, of course, is that all of those things are fun things. None of these things are things that you wouldn't love to do anyway. I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about spending more time in the mountains, spending more time in the sun, laughing more, having more sex, eating different foods, traveling. I mean, this is like, even if this weren't helping your health, you'd want to live this way anyway. But the fact <laughs> that that might actually improve your, your health on top of it, I mean, it, it, it feels like it's, it's one of those like, you know, just incredible win-wins. Now, is this, uh, yeah, this may be going too far for this discussion too deep so to speak but you know in your experience uh how how would you think about this situation where let's say you make you've made some poor financial choices you've made some poor health choices you've accumulated a lot of inflammation and a lot of stress right and that sort of in a way create or it triggers a response where you're kind of treading water and you're just trying to survive mm-hmm. how this i know this is this is a very loaded question it's going very deep very fast um but in your opinion if you're uh, if you want to go this route um how would somebody in that situation start to think about this concept and i think i'll, I'll also frame it with saying that most of the listeners of this podcast probably aren't in that deep of a situation um, or they may not know it if they are. And, and sometimes we all are in that situation and maybe sometimes we don't even know it. But um, so it's, it's uh, just kind of an interesting thing that I think many people in the world kind of get to that point where they're, they feel like they're treading water and how do they kind of uh, think more about this process <laughs> yeah I, I don't know and it's uh it, it is not a loaded question at all i think it's a very important question because everybody uh, you know when you think about your capacity reserve capacity as a water following effect where you kind of get into different states within the adaptive landscape of physiologic capacity um so you know what works for one person may be catastrophic for another um and we don't know um, let's say they slip into the third layer of the waterfall in terms of the preserve. Your body has like layers and layers of responsiveness. Like even your autonomic physiology, when you, when you kind of break it out, um, you know, first at the molecular level, to the adenosine response, to autonomic, you know, the, the, the 
the polyvagal theory, all these things suggest that uh, our body has multiple states of uh, kind of more local, local, um, local resilience. Uh, so depending on where you are, uh, how you can use what you have left to recover to the next level, um, I think is highly individually dependent. So I, I think it's hard to make a blanket statement. Um, but just the fact that we're alive at all suggests that we have more reserve than we think. So I think that's encouraging. Um, unless you're literally in, in the ICU and you're, you're on the brink. Um, um, I think most people that are still you know, able to walk around, um, you know, by definition, they have resilience. Um, so then using, again, increments of stress to kind of get back. I think everybody's on their own path. And I think it's really listening to your body uh, in some ways using common sense. Um, rather than following a script, I would be that would be my cop out answer because it's really a complex question. In no, meantime, it's you know, and, and apologies for interruption, but I, I appreciate actually you answering that with kind of a process that that anyone can apply because that is the conundrum, right? Is that we're all individual, even though we share similar biology, we have uh, differing physiological states, differing needs, different life's uh different priorities um and and as you know as i was asking that question it's a deep question that that that's kind of what i was trying to wrap my mind around was uh and you answered it eloquently about the individuality and uh it in a by coincidence i actually had written down uh some rules rules that you had um in a youtube video that people can uh, potentially uh, reference, but um, be a camera, aim high, be a verb. And I just happened to read those bullet points that I had written down right after I asked the question to you. So as you're saying it, those are the words that were kind of echoing in my uh, conscious and, and then relating it to your individual condition. You know, maybe we don't have to uh, dig into each of those rules today in this conversation, but specifically the last one, be a verb, uh, which is uh, echoing some things that you said a few minutes ago, taking action, trying new things, um, look for the thing that you might have a little bit of reserve in and try to make change in that area, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, as I'm listening to you, uh, you know, a funny thought comes to mind. I mean, th there is the, the hegemony of linguistics. We are, uh, you know, we're oppressed by um, the words we choose to use and self-oppression. It's not, it's not the system, you know, almost all forms of tyranny are self-tyranny. So you can think about nouns as state, three-dimensional. You can think about verbs as four-dimensional. And while it's just mm. one dimension, the direct, the, the actual um, effect goes opposite. So like, and I'll just give you like one example, like, you know, um, so, you know, our kids have learned about the world and, and they've moved about the world through love of things like music and sports. Um, and people say, well, that's passion. Well, actually, I didn't say passion. I said love. Or weren't they similar? So it made me think about the word passion versus love. Love is a noun. I'm sorry. Passion is a noun. Love you know, can be a noun too, but love is generally a verb. Love is something you bestow on others. Love is an action. Whereas passion is something you have. And at the end of your days, are you the sum of what you have or the sum of what you did? Obviously, it's the latter, right? You, know, you don't take anything you have with you. Um, but you, you've conferred um, things onto the system. You've contributed to the world through your actions. So I tend to think about verbs as four-dimensional. So 
uh, an easy way for people to remember this relative to this conversation is just, you know, just go on and do rather than cogitate. Don't overthink. Uh, just get out there and do it. And by the way, if it's hard to remember, uh, aim high, be a camera, and be a verb, the, the way to distill all three of those into, again, a lower order word is just be a kid. When we're a kid, we don't aim high. We, we just dream. And at some point, we started lowering our aims, um, probably around puberty. When we're young, we're not, we don't have to be a camera. We're, we're just seers. We're curious. We can learn a language, um, learn an instrument, learn how to skate. And after 13, you never really own it, right? So Because our mind switches from a camera to a projector. We start projecting upon the world. We start acting like we know it all. Think about a typical teen. You know, they say, they that I don't want to hear it anymore, right? I know, I know. Um, but imagine restoring the camera function that we become listeners again. Uh, you're very good at this, becoming seers again. Uh, and same thing with you know being a verb. I think just you know as we get older, we become more intellectual, we become more sedentary. Not only in terms of our lifestyles, but just even the way we think and even the way we move. Um, you know, all dimensions. Like let's let's just be a kid out there and do it again, again. The kids don't talk about being a verb. They just they just are right. They manifest that being. Um, and I want to kind of use that moment to dovetail the conversation into situations where kids are non-resilient, where they have gaps in homeostatic capacity. Uh, and ironically, the place I started tuning into this, because uh, we know kids also do suffer and they have chronic diseases, um, I detected it through HRV. That's um, kids with food allergies that are prone to anaphylaxis, have asthma, or just allergic, allergic in general. Um, when you look at the symptoms of um, their crisis, both chronic and acute, bronchoconstriction, bradycardia, low blood pressure, swelling, uh, rhinorrhea, they're all vaguely mediated. These, this is the parasympathetic features of uh, imbalance. Um, and I don't know if the vagal tone is too, too strong or um, I think my instinct tells me it's actually a sympathetic insufficiency that normally when you have this non-homeostatic state of unless you're in bronchoconstriction during asthma, then normally your sympathetic tone should kick in to restore you back to three-dimensional homeostasis. And yet these kids don't. So what does that say? Um, and it's so interesting that all these diseases are essentially treated with epinephrine analogs. They have you know, fancy brand names, but ultimately it's an external in injection of sympathetic mimetic that you get you back. But then of course that undermines you because you've never solved the underlying problem. So we back tested the HRV of kids that have, and you can do this with the device that you have, um, that have a history of uh, anaphylaxis, uh, asthma, uh, allergies. And in our unpublished set, again, we need a lot more data, but our you know, data we've got today, and I'd love to get the community involved in this, they are manifesting um, autonomic dysfunction. Um, and it's hard to unpack whether it's vagal access or sympathetic uh, insufficiency, but I think we can just generally say there's a uh, there's an autonomic dysfunction that they're walking around with at baseline that that are being triggered by certain events. The deeper question is why do they have that? Why do they have gaps in homeostatic capacity in their autonomic function? All that stuff remains to be investigated. It could be because of chronic allostatic load. Maybe there's chronic stress out there, and I don't know. It could be it could be physical, it could be chemical, it could be behavioral. I mean, all those things can you know funnel down into a depletion of um, autonomic capacity such that these external triggers can, um, can lead to systemic collapse. So that's another, I think, emergent area that we can really help people uh, and, and especially use the kind of um, platform that you have, both through communication but also data gathering. Uh, HRV is a, it's a, it's a consumer-level technology 
but can get massive amounts of data to look for some signal in, in all the noise that's out there in science and biology uh, as a way to make a contribution that can you know, really be life-saving and, and, and life-giving to so many people. Hmm. And that's, some, that's something that this is such an exciting time to be alive in general because we're in a uh, time where we know that the signal is there within the noise and we just have to find it. <laughs> for all, for a lot of these questions, you know, maybe not necessarily curing aging uh, right w- within our grasp, but but within uh, our it's within our grasp to solve some of these problems and find the root causes of them if we can find that signal in the noise. And you know, the the thing that uh, fascinates me a lot about what you're just describing too is sort of the epigenetic and generational kind of compounding effects of all of our uh all of the environmental choices and uh lifestyle and behavior choices that we make um it's just a personal area of interest but um dr june i want to be respectful of your time because this is we've already come up on an hour here and we've learned so much from you already is there anything that you'd like to um share with the listeners before we kind of part and then I can already tell you that um, we're probably going to try to twist your arm a little bit to uh, have a round two and dig into some deeper uh, areas that we've already scratched the surface on. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate you having me today uh, and I'm, I will make time to come back uh, and maybe the way to plant the seed for the next conversation is um, to talk about what are the things that the innovators can do. We talk a lot about what um, you know the, the listeners and audience can do uh, out in the community. Um, but on the leading edge of science, um, and, and this is just to wrap the note um, on what you are just talking about, and the signal of noise. Um, my scientific curiosity right now is on why we lose signal to response fidelity. So when you think about loss of homeostatic capacity, you can see it in cells. You go from 100% fidelity of response to signal, whatever you know, the signal can be a stressor, to like 99, 98, 97. So there's something happening at the cellular level where the loss of fidelity is the reporter and then homeostatic capacity is the higher order effect and then diseases are even the higher order effect. So um, you know, maybe um, that'll be um, a question that we can explore next time. What is happening that is leading to this loss of responsiveness of signal. Oh man, I, I, uh, <laughs> can we, can we meet up tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. So, okay. Well, that is a great, uh, uh, kind of thing to take away for the audience here. And, you know, another thing that I kind of want to echo is, uh, just really appreciate your, uh, approach and looking at this as, uh, both a simple and complex problem and the fact that um, it can be individual for everyone. So everyone listening to this, um, almost uh, I'm certain that everyone listening to this has something about themselves that they want to improve and they can take this concept of uh, constant variation um, or consistent inconsistency, or another, how many ways we can say that um, into their lives in different ways. So thank you very much for, for sharing all of that. And we will link to some of the 
people and papers and things that you've referenced in this in our show notes. And we'll also link to your website um, if, if that's what you'd like. Is there a place that people can look for more information from your work? I think that's great. There's great starting points. Um, what I'm going to do between now and the next time um, you and I are able to chat is I'm going to listen to uh, your other episodes. Uh, I'm going to do my own variance training to learn about the different ideas and different conversations you're having so I can be more robust um, next time I'm here for you. Wow, I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm honored. And uh, we'll wrap there. And Dr. June, I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I, I think everybody will really enjoy the conversation a lot. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. And thank you, everyone. Bye-bye now. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy.